Hello everyone out there on the internet today. My name is Nick Peters, and as I'm sure you know, this is the Deeper Waters Podcast. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome aboard. We have switched hosts recently, so we've surely got some new listeners. At least I hope we do, and I hope you'll be regular listeners and including this as part of your apologetics education. And as you should know, and or if you don't know already, you're going to learn, we try to bring you the very best in Christian apologetics here. And today, of course, is no exception. Today we're going to be talking about the book called The New Atheism, A Survivor Guide. And it's by Graham Veer. Graham Veer is co-founder of SaintsAndSkeptics.org, a web ministry for apologetics. A theological graduate of Queen's University, Belfast, he has been teaching religious education for 15 years in Armagh, Northern Ireland. He and his wife, Nicola, are parents of two children. With a particular interest in the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, the design, and moral arguments for God's existence, Graham is the author of the book, New Atheism, A Survivor Guide. And so today, we're going to be talking about that book. So, Graham, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Oh, well, very glad to be on, Nick. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, I've told a little bit from your bio about you, but some people might not know who you are too much. So uh, tell us a about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, I teach religious education um, in a state school in Northern Ireland. Uh, state schools um, teach religious education um, over here. Um, and I've been doing that for about... 16 years. Um, I li- at the school I teach in is County Armagh. Uh, Jonathan Swift, I suppose, is the most famous Armagian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Armagh, Armagh would be Ireland's cathedral city. It would be a centre, really, of uh, ecclesiastical things in, Northern, in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, I, I'm a graduate in theology. I'm doing postgraduate studies at the minute at Queen's University. Uh, really on the design argument and issues related to that. And uh, I, I wrote New Atheism, a survival guide, really as a response to some of the sound bites, some of the arguments that were coming both from my students and that I was encountering online. Um, I felt that popular atheism needed some sort of um, response. Uh, and so I wrote a slim volume, uh, New Atheism Survival Guide, and Christian Focus Publications were very, um, were, were, were pleased enough to, to uh, publish and promote that for me. Um, I'm also the co-founder of Saints and Skeptics uh, at uh, an Irish apologetics website, and I run that with uh, Dr. David Glass, University mm-hmm. of Ulster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, David wrote uh, uh, Atheism's New Clothes, yeah. uh, which means we know next. Um, so we have uh, we run that together. We've been doing that really for the last nearly two years. Uh, David was very much the brains of the operation. Um, I'm uh, I'm not really sure what my role is. Mm-hmm. Maybe down his looks. Um, but uh, so that's really a brief summary of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I can tell people that uh, I have actually read also the Atheism's New Clothes, and it is another excellent book, highly worth reading. Uh-huh. Oh, it's a, it's a very, very good book. Um, I, I initially, um, I'd intended to write a slim volume with David. Um, and just, uh, I think, as New Atheism's New Clothes began to take up most and most of it, more and more of his time, um, I, I had to take on New Atheism, a survival guide of my own. So in some ways, it's a book that came about by accident. 
Mm. Um, and it's encouraged by, you know, whenever I put it together, I thought it was something that could maybe just go on the, on the website. But uh, friends, uh, Mark McCartney as well, Dr. Mark McCartney being involved with Saints and Skeptics, um, they encouraged me to know that this should really go to a publisher. So um, for better or worse, I followed their advice and it, it was published you know, just this year. And you were also on Unbelievable debating on the movie The Unbelievers. That's true, yes. Uh, um, I was on twice over the summer. Um, I also spoke with Rory Fenton about the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Mm. Um, Rory Fenton works for the Humanist Association, I think, in, in London. And um, been on the Steve Deese show, uh, been on the Standard Reason podcast, and was on with Janet Mefford as well. So it's been, it's been interesting um, and enjoyable too, you know, talking to different people about the book and the ideas in it. Yeah. It's interesting that what you just said is, in fact, a little bit about the very first chapter in your book, and I'm sure some people out there could have been wondering, a flying spaghetti monster. What on earth is about? How do you have a debate about a flying spaghetti monster? Yeah, the flying spaghetti monster, um, it's an atheist meme, um, and uh, a meme's just an idea that's uh, repeated, a very simple idea that's repeated uh, and catches on in popular culture. That's not... Dawkins' definition of a meme or the academic definition of a meme, but uh, it's sort of a popular definition. Um, the idea is that a, a student, Bobby Henderson, that wrote the Kansas State School Board, if I remember correctly, um, claiming that uh, if they were going to teach intelligent design in schools, could they please make room for his version of intelligent design, which was that the universe and life on Earth was created by a flying spaghetti monster, which was made of uh, intangible, invisible, spiritual noodles and meatballs. And this caught on. There's no predicting what will or won't catch on on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, but Bobby Henderson's letter took off. Um, it, it was originally designed, I think, as a, as a, a bit of fun, a bit of name-calling. I, I get the impression that Bobby Henderson felt that there was maybe a bit of substance to what he was doing, a little bit of satire. Um, but this was picked up very quickly by people like Richard Dawkins, who believed that this was a, a version of Bertrand Russell's teapot. So Bertrand Russell basically said that if I was to say to you right now, there's a teapot orbiting the sun, you wouldn't believe me. But if that had been revealed in some religious text, you might believe me. And that just shows how ridiculous uh, religion is, because people believe things without evidence. And the Flying Spaghetti Monster said Dawkins is the same thing. It's basically the idea that there is some, you, you believe it just because of, without any evidence, you believe it without rational justification. It's just like any idea in, in religion. Once you start believing in things without evidence, you might as well believe in flying teacups, orbiting teacups, and flying spaghetti monsters. So Bobby Henderson repeated this on the, the, the Ganza site. Uh, where the flying spaghetti monster has its home, and this seems to be the canonical definition or the canonical meaning of the flying spaghetti monster. Seems to be. Um, I've one online reviewer who tells me that I completely misunderstood it. And at that stage, I feel like saying, well, okay, this thing seems to be, and I think it's meant to be fun, but primarily it, it is a, an update on this this. Uh, this orbital teacup of Bertrand Russell's, and the idea is that, you know, well, religious people believe things without evidence, 
will believe things purely on faith, and if you're going to do that, well, you might as well believe in a flying spaghetti monster um, mm. or any other nonsense that you're an invisible pink unicorn made mm. the universe. Mm. Uh, and so the idea is to satirize religious belief, it's to satirize theism, uh, it's to make people think that their beliefs are silly and not sort of company. Mm-hmm. It's more of a name-calling exercise than anything else. Mm-hmm. Jeez, I mean, isn't there some truth? Isn't it the case that all we do is we just have faith and we just believe without evidence? I, uh, no, I mean, I think one of the, the, the things that churches maybe need to get their act together on in this area is to, to get the biblical definition of faith sorted out and mm-hmm. preached correctly. Um, you know, faith is trust. Um, faith is placing your trust in someone, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how Paul understands faith. That's how Genesis understands faith. You know, that's how uh, the Gospel of John begins with as many that believed into His name. Mm-hmm. So faith is a matter of trusting someone, uh, and you can trust someone for good reasons or no reasons or bad reasons. In, in that sense, faith is relative neutral, but the Bible goes out of its way to establish that Christians and uh, and death have good reason for trusting God, have good reason for trusting Jesus. And so the idea that uh, faith in the Bible is blind doesn't really understand what the Bible means by faith, uh, and doesn't understand how Christians throughout history, mm-hmm. and how the Bible itself understands how faith should operate. Faith is not meant to be blind. Faith is meant to be accompanied by a judgment. Um, and the New Testament authors go out of their way uh, continually to say, look, these are not cunningly devised fables. Uh, we were eyewitnesses. There's eyewitness testimony. You can consult records for the life of Jesus. Um, Romans chapter 1, Acts 17, again, very strong on the idea that you know you cannot understand this universe unless you believe that it has been created, and that there's one creator who is so great that he cannot be represented um, by images or by idols. So uh, the Bible is very big on rational faith, so long as we begin to define our terms carefully and begin to talk about faith the way the Bible talks about faith. When you were talking about David Glass's book, The Atheism's New Clothes, and talking about what we're talking about right now, I can't but think of how P.Z. Myers, for instance, has said when we meet arguments with uh, about theism, if we're atheists, then we're supposed to respond with the courtier's reply. Yes, that's right. Uh, the idea there is that... Um well, the idea was that Richard Dawkins is meant to be like the young, young boy in the story of the Emperor's New Clothes. And mm-hmm. so the Emperor is parading proudly down the street with no clothes on, and he's claiming that he is in fact wearing invisible, intangible clothes, and Richard Dawkins is supposed to be the young boy who's went, the Emperor's naked, the Emperor's got no clothes. Mm-hmm. And so... A number of people responded to Richard Dawkins after the gold delusion, a number of academics, and said, listen, Richard Dawkins doesn't really understand theology, he doesn't understand philosophy or philosophy of religion, he should not have written this book. P.V. Meyer's defense of Richard Dawkins is that, look, um, it was the courtier's reply, and he says, look, imagine that uh, after the emperor had walked down the street with no clothes on, he returned to the palace and he was furious that the people had laughed at him and so he commissioned a number of 
top-level academics to write a reply uh, to the people explaining why they were just imbeciles and why they were ignorant and it demonstrated their ignorance in laughing at him for having mm. new clothes. Uh, P.C. Myers called this the courtiers' reply. The, the courtiers get together and write long, verbose uh, books with long technical arguments to try and explain to ordinary people why they were wrong to laugh at the emperor. But of course, the courtiers are being as nonsensical as the emperor himself. Everybody knows that the everybody knows that the emperor really had no clothes on. Mm-hmm. And the problem with P.G. Maher's argument there is this: he says, you know, one. Uh, Belief in God is just like the belief that the emperor is wearing clothes when, in fact, the emperor is naked. Two, you know, well, some academic theists might respond that we have good arguments to say religious belief isn't like that. Uh, but three, those theists must be wrong because the emperor's because theistic belief is just like believing that the emperor has clothes on. Uh, and it's just a circular argument. It's just a, an insult that's been thrown out at. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, P.C. Myers himself behaves very much like the courtiers. Mm-hmm. He uses his academic standing, he uses his scientific credentials, um, basically to rule out tripe <laughs> against mm-hmm. religion. He basically serves up nonsensical arguments, ill-informed arguments about theism, uh, and pretends that these have some sort of merit because he has a scientific education, and it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting that Myers and Dawkins have fallen out since that time. Um, you know, they've shared platforms together, but recently Dawkins has run into trouble with uh, feminists, as is Sam Harris, um, and there has been quite a falling out in the, in the community of what we could label new atheists. So, you know, how that. Um, that little family dispute ends up with nobody knows. It looks fairly irreparable at the minute. Um, but, you know, the new atheist community is strong. P.G. Myers you know, could come out narrowly ahead of Richard Dawkins here, if, if I'm judging things correctly. Mm. You know, it's so interesting when I see these kinds of things going on that when you talk about how these people vote and said that the Dawkins shouldn't have written this book. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It wasn't just Christians and theologians who were saying this. There were atheists who were doing the same thing. And Michael Ruse even said that he found the God delusion embarrassing. Yes, and I think it was those people that the courtiers' reply Mm. was meant to silence. It wasn't in any sense intended to refute Michael Ruse. Mm. Um, I think P.C. Myers is a very intelligent man and he's a very capable communicator. Um, he understands the medium of the internet very well. Mm. I think he knew that this was a ridiculous argument, that this was no argument at all. Mm. But really what it did is it uh, motivated the troops, it, 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 it restored some morale in the ranks of these of the new atheists in that well, we can ignore Ruse, we can ignore um, any atheist or you know academic atheist who thinks that the atheists really have nothing to say, they're they're just behaving like uh, you know the the courtiers really, uh, and I think really they were aiming at a group of people who they call accommodationists, mm. and an accommodationist is anybody who is an atheist but who thinks that faith might be rational, mm. or an atheist who might even believe that theism is irrational but still doesn't think it's worth working up any energy over, um, who thinks that we should accept 
you know, theism and society's laws it behaves rationally and so these these accommodationists really are the target of arguments like the the courtiers reply. I don't really think that that uh, Myers thought it would do very much to the you know to people like Michael Roos, um, but I, I I think it did maybe stop a number of his followers, stop a number of Dawkins followers listening to Roos, and that was really the intent behind this sort of argument, to my, in my judgment. You know, what I usually find with this kind of thing is that I tend to refer to it as an atheistic presuppositionalism, where it's pretty much assumed where all rational people are atheists, and if you disagree, where well, you're automatically irrational, and there's never any argument really put forward for why I should believe that just because I'm a theist, I'm automatically irrational. Oh, yes, that's right. And so you have this idea that atheism isn't a belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this, well, atheists don't really believe anything. Now, I, I suppose if you want to put um, atheism on a par with uh, the mental states of non-sentient beings, that's fine. You know, they don't have a belief in, 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 in atheism. Uh, in theism. Does that make a rock or a plant or a, a salamander mm-hmm. an atheist? Um, but the bottom line is that you just have to turn around to somebody and ask, well, should I believe that the atheism is true? Mm-hmm. Or should I believe that it's more rational not to be a theist? Mm-hmm. And at that stage, they have to assert something and they have to make some sort of argument. The arguments really that um, circulate around on the internet really are that weak. What I find depressing is the number of highly educated people who buy into them mm-hmm. and who accept them. Yep. Uh, perhaps I, I shouldn't be that surprised. Um, education is, is very, very specialized, and being well-educated doesn't make you wise. But you know, some of the, the, the snarkier comments that have come back to me from my book have come from well-educated people and have made arguments that um, don't bear 30 seconds reflection. They're really just sound bites. Uh, and the idea seems to be that you can answer an argument for theism with a tweet. Um, and, and that's depressing. That really is depressing. And I think you've maybe hit the nail on the head there. It's a presuppositionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I am right because I say I'm right. Um, they have the sort of self-confident glint in their eye that, um, that disturbs me when I see it in, in uh, fellow evangelicals, and, and it disturbs me when I see it in, in, in anybody, religious or non-religious, this, this absolute conviction that, that what I believe is right, not really because I'm convinced of it, but just because I'm the person who happens to believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and somebody as intelligent as me has a belief, well, therefore, it is automatically true. Mm-hmm. And that attitude worries me. Um, you know, sometimes in churches you find people who hold a ridiculous belief because they believe they're so spiritual they could never believe in anything. Right. I think what we get in the, the atheist community is people who believe, well, I am so well educated, I am so technically comp- uh, competent, um, I am so scientifically literate. That therefore my convictions about religion are automatically true and are more rational than a Christian's. And that sort of fundamentalism can be a little bit scary. I'm also thinking about Jerry Corning right now, who uh, he, yeah, he writes yeah. up. Yeah. We actually had some exchanges with Coyne um, through our webs, very brief exchange over morality. And, and again, I mean, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing remotely intimidating uh, about Jerry Coyne. 
at all. Um, you know, I mean, we, whenever we found out that Jerry Coyne had, had reacted to something we had said about him on our website, neither Dave nor I, you know, were biting our nails and thinking, how do we respond to this intellectual giant? Because the arguments aren't great. They're just said with a great deal of confidence and a sort of self-assured glint in the eye that, you know, if you were to see it in a politician, you'd be a little bit disturbed. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I do wonder at this, this, this extraordinary self-confidence, and you just wonder how safe that is. Um, you know, would you want to be a postgraduate student, you know, working, you know, with religious beliefs? Working in that sort of environment, well, I'm sure these people are very professional and do well. But when you see what they write online, it might make you uneasy. So um, I, I just worry a little bit about the sneer pressure and what sort of atmosphere it would create in the academy if it if it became more popular than it currently is. Well, when I was seen by him, it was particularly because I remember seeing a story by Volkers. But he found this article or something somewhere. Someone had written about how we might have found Peter's house in Israel, and mm-hmm. it was just this whole tirade response about religion and Christianity. And of course, you had the Christmas crowd showing up there oh, yeah. immediately afterwards. This is just a total reactionary thing, as if if there's any one thing that supports any sort of truth whatsoever in the Bible, we can't allow it, no matter what. I, yes, I think I think the Jesus myth crowds yes are motivated to hold this really absurd proposition that Jesus never existed mm-hmm. because as soon as they allow historical reliability on any level into the Gospels, well, some of the most firmly established facts are that you know there was an empty tomb, for example. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that the disciples believed that there was a resurrection, and they believed this very soon after Jesus' crucifixion. Another certain fact, as soon as you allow any degree of reliability, the case for the resurrection is one of the first things that comes in through the door. Mm-hmm. Um, where generally you might, a number of New Testament scholars try to come up with explanations for why it looks as if a resurrection happened. Um, and then David Glass is doing some very interesting work on that at the minute. Actually, it's worth keeping your eye out for. Um, uh, just on how you have these extreme... If there was no resurrection, you have to explain why this absurd belief that somebody was resurrected before the end of the world, this appears out of nowhere. So there's number one. Number two, you have appearances of Jesus on some level. Well, that's unexpected. Uh, three, you've got an empty tomb or what looks like an, you know, evidence for an empty tomb. So there's you know, three yeah. things which are not connected with each other in, in, in any real way, uh, yet they, they just seem to happen coincidentally to make it look as if there is a resurrection. And it's just much simpler to believe um, that there was a miracle here, that Jesus was risen from the dead. Uh, my, my own take on this would be that, that the Jesus myth crowd gets their energy from the fear that once they allow Jesus to exist, once they allow an historical Jesus a foot in through the door, well, then they're going to have to face this case for the resurrection very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't want to have to do that. Because while there might be, re- they might feel that there might be replies to that case out there, they, they, they can't bear the idea of Christians even having a case that makes them look rational. You know, it's not enough that, that, um, that we're incorrect. We have to be an irrational 
for new atheism to work. Mm-hmm. It's not enough for atheism to be true. Atheism must be obviously true for new atheism to work. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you really have to say extraordinary things like Jesus never existed. You, know, you mm-hmm. can't even show me that Jesus ever existed. Because once you allow the case for the historical Jesus to get in there, which is accepted in the academy, then things like the case for the resurrection, which have been argued by top, as it has been argued by top New Testament scholars, James Dunn to some extent, and he writes definitely, um, Richard Baucom, um, you know, top scholars arguing for this, and they have to take it seriously. And the minute you do that, Christianity is no longer obviously false. There's a case to answer here for the atheist. And the atheism falls apart at that stage. It is no longer obviously true. Mm. Well, before we go on to the next part of the book, which is going to be talking about the warfare between science and religion, since we've talked a little bit about it, I'd like to give some people some resources for here. But first off, some of you might not know it, but I'm actually scheduled to debate Ken Humphreys on the topic of if Jesus existed on Julian Charles' show, The Mind Renewed, on November 20th, so be listening for that one. should be an interesting debate. And if you go back and look through our archives, which you can find on my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com, I've had interviews with Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas, both from the resurrection. So, Graham's giving you a bit of a tip of the iceberg. If you want to get before deer, you can go there and hear that. But now we're going to move to the next part. And this is an interesting one to use since we talk about P.Z. Myers and his use in science. And it seems to be the idea that science has become the new priesthood as it were, but if you're a scientist, you're automatically an authority on everything, and then we say, well, we know science and religion have just been in total warfare from the very beginning. I mean, isn't that obvious? Yeah, that's certainly a very popular secular myth. Um, I think it's one of the motivating myths of secularism that uh, as we progress scientifically, as we, as bureaucracies become more important, uh, and it's become more powerful. We'll no longer need religion as an explanation for the universe, and we'll no longer need religion as a social glue to hold people together. Um, and of course, it hasn't panned out like that. It hasn't worked out like that, and I think that creates a sort of a moral panic amongst the atheists. So why has history not worked out the way we expected it to? Um, one of the uh, finding pillars of this myth, or one of the most important pillars, is the idea that there has been a continual warfare between science and Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the idea here would be is that, um, well, once we use the God or God to explain things, but science has uncovered more and more explanations, mechanical explanations, law-like explanations for things. And mm-hmm. a science uncovers the mechanisms and the laws which govern our universe, Mm -hmm. our need for God retreats. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is a ludicrous argument, because the the foundations of the scientific method go back to Christian theists, who were arguing that there's a God who created a law-like universe with mechanisms, and if we look, we will discover those mechanisms, and we will discover those laws, and that will confirm theism. Uh, and therefore, we should be studying the universe using experimental methods. We should be examining the universe using observation and measurement to try to discover the mechanisms and the laws which God has put there. That's the underlying idea behind science. Now, it's not the only thing that's going on to start the scientific revolution. I mean, we shouldn't overstate the 
space here. I mean, Christianity had been around for a long time, you know, 1,500 years, nothing like modern science. It took um, uh, mathematics, it took uh, exploration of people thinking about mathemat mathematics and astronomy and, and mathematicians to develop, and all sorts of things were going on in the background here. But still, one key ingredient is the likes of Galileo or Kepler or Descartes, who's really the guy who lifts up the idea of laws of nature mathematically, uh, which can be described by mathematics, which God has put there, which we will understand. And from Descartes on, people look for these laws. And it's motivated by theism. It's motivated by the idea that we should expect these things because there's a God, because there's a creator. If there's a rational creator, we should expect them to govern his universe in a rational way. So this is what they predicted given theism. They predicted we would discover laws. They predicted we would discover mechanisms. Mm. Um, and this would confirm theism. So the idea that discovering laws and mechanisms in nature somehow explains away God has just got the whole, it's got the whole thing backwards. Mm. Uh, the fact that we keep discovering laws and mechanisms shows this is a rational universe which is well governed and that there's a mind, a, a mathematician of the highest order behind all this. Um, an architect, an engineer, an artist, whatever way you want to put it, the whole thing is screaming out for a purpose, a a purpose of explanation. explanation. Mm -hmm. There's purpose here uh, and there's uh, design and, and order and this is what the, the first scientist expected to find. It in no way explains God away. It simply raises the question, where did this order come from? So discovering more order in, in no sense undermines the design argument. It strengthens it. Mm. Um, so this, this idea that somehow we don't need science, or that we don't need God because we've got science, it's an extraordinary myth, really, mm. when you look at it from an historical perspective. Well, you did mention Galileo, but isn't Galileo a prime example of a problem? I mean, there you had science versus religion, obviously, and where, geez, we know science worn out in that one. Uh, well, I mean, the interesting thing there, if you look at that whole controversy, um, Cardinal Bellarmine was probably the uh, Galileo's strongest opponent, and he was a very strong biblical liberalist. Mm. But even Cardinal Bellarmine um, had a uh, group letter to Foscarini that if it could be demonstrated to him uh, that you know that the, the the Earth went around the sun, then of course he would change his reading of Scripture. Uh, what really happened there wasn't so much a conflict between science and, and religion uh, as a conflict between Galileo and the Church authorities. Um, mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of political things going on in the background. The Pope wasn't very much to stay in with um, Spain, um, and therefore wanted to take a very strong line and to look like the defender of, of, of strong conservative Catholicism. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have Galileo putting some of the Pope's favourite arguments in the, in the character, uh, in the mouth of a character called Simplicio, a simpleton. So there's all sorts of personal and political things going on here. Mm -hmm. and, Galileo episode that, that really, whenever it's examined in some detail, the idea that there's some sort of conflict between science and Christianity goes out the window. Uh, because when you look at what uh, Cardinal Bellarmine says, and you look at what Galileo says in their letters about science and religion, they're actually agreed on the substance. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually agreed that, uh, yeah, yeah, there's, the, the Bible's true, we should respect the Bible, we should follow what the Bible says. 
And they also agree that observation can correct our interpretation of the Bible. It's just that one felt that Galileo's science was awful, and Galileo obviously felt that his science was great. Mm. Um, uh, so that's really the, the Galileo debate. I don't think that there's very much there that, that, um, that can support the myth of a conflict between science and Christianity. It's also my understanding that the church was just fine with Galileo's views as a hypothesis. They just didn't want him to go around and say, hey, this is a fact yet without having it be certified. And frankly, in Galileo's day, it couldn't be proven to be a fact. Yeah, the, the, yeah, this is the yeah, this is where um, science really starts to come into its own. Around about the time of the Galileo debate, and where uh, around about this time, people were okay with the idea that mathematicians could make useful predictions. Um, so they could make useful predictions about tides and about stars and things and so forth. But the idea that mathematicians could uncover the truth about the physical universe—that well, that, that was really a radical idea. Mathematicians were considered to be you know, lower down the food chain than philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Galileo in many ways was actually challenging um, Aristotelian ideas and saying that no, if, if, if we begin to look at, at the universe as, as matter governed by mathematical laws, uh, we can make more useful predictions and we can get further and we can understand the universe more clearly. Uh, and that's part of the academic debate that's going on. Can we use mathematical laws to describe the universe? Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, on that, on, on that side, Galileo was, was spot on. But again, what's motivating him is theism. You know, I mean, it makes sense to say that mathematics could describe the universe because there could be a, a God could be a mathematician. Mm-hmm. That's why, why mathematics, it makes sense to use mathematics to measure and mm-hmm. to make predictions. Don't we still see the same kind of debates going on today? I mean, how many Facebook groups and such and websites are there arguing about creation versus evolution constantly? Isn't this still a war between science and religion? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, to say that, that, that there's no necessary or essential conflict between um, science and religion is one thing to say that one particular religious doctrine might not come into conflict with a particular scientific orthodoxy now and then. I mean, obviously that's what happens from time to time. Um, some people are going to feel threatened by scientific ideas or scientists are going to feel threatened by religious ideas. Uh, this is you know, Because human beings are human. These are humans at work here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as and skeptics, we've come to a position very quickly where um, we're more than happy to, um, to, to, to grant evolution to the, to the atheist and say, now, how do you explain the mechanisms of work here? How do you explain the conditions that allow us to, to, to work? So, um, and again, throughout the history of evangelicalism, there have been people who were very comfortable with that idea or ideas similar to it. Um, the one note of caution that I would have is that whenever somebody... Once somebody believes in a creator who can perform miracles, they might be inclined to look at the evidence differently than somebody who doesn't. Uh, to me, that's more to be it for theologians, uh, maybe philosophers of religion than scientists per se. Some people might disagree with that. That's up to them. I'm, I'm quite relaxed in this issue. Uh, but the idea here that there's some sort of fundamental conflict between the theory of evolution and between what CS3 has become mere Christianity, 
seems to be overstating the case to, to a large extent. I, I, I don't see whenever you put those propositions side by side that there's an automatic logical conflict. Mm. Um, uh, so I, I don't really see a huge war going on here in terms of the ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I did read something today about Stephen Hawking, how he said that he's an atheist, and he says the reason he is is because religion involves miracles, and miracles conflict with science. Um, again, though, that's just a statement. I mean, why would why would a miracle conflict with with science? What exactly is his argument here? Um, the idea would be that I mean, a miracle can only be detected if there is a regular pattern of events to put it to, to put it in the con- for a context. So you need a regular set of events, predictable laws. If you don't have that going on in the background, you can't detect a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, so in no sense does the idea of miracles undermine the idea of scientific laws. If there's a creator who made the laws, he can, if he has good occasion, if he has good reason to, he might well decide to suspend those laws for something like a virgin birth, for something like a resurrection. And the idea of laws, remember, is motivated by theism. It's really coming out of that uh, Judeo-Christian background. So how that there is some sort of uh, conflict here between um, uh, between science and Christianity just that just doesn't that just I, I don't really see how that that just seems to be a slogan that doesn't seem to be an argument um, you know obviously the definition of a miracle is it's not going to happen regularly under under laboratory conditions it, it's not going to happen mm-hmm. and so therefore it's not going to feature in a scientific explanation so the idea that there would be miracles in nature does uh, is not going to conflict with the science stage or in, in any sense. Well, how about the uh, popular belief we have today that science is either A, the highest way of knowing something, or B, the only way of knowing something? Uh, well, the under- again, the problem there is that, well, the science itself teaches that idea. Uh, does that idea turn up in any experimental result? No. Mm-hmm. Does that idea include it in any scientific hypothesis? No. So can it be scientifically tested? No. So the idea that science is the only way or the highest way of understanding the world uh, is really a philosophical idea and needs to be defended philosophically. Um, and therefore, you know, somebody who advocates that is really defending a philosophical position, uh, which seems to be cutting the ground out from underneath them. But there's absolutely no reason. I mean, I call that scientific dogmatism in the book, that science should be the best way or the only way of knowing things. Um, well, the question is, well, why should I believe that? What's your argument? Can you demonstrate that scientifically? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer very quickly will come back, no. It, it just seems to be a matter of taste for some people. Um, so, well, you're quite welcome to that. Yes, but that doesn't put any obligation on me to, to agree with you or to take that seriously. Um, and I think the danger of it is that you begin to shut down all sorts of other explanations and all sorts of other fields of inquiry prematurely if you buy into the scientific dogmatism. It's not just theology, but take theology. If there is a God, that's the most important thing that human beings can know. So mm-hmm. why would you shut down that sort of inquiry by saying that science is the only way of understanding the universe, mm-hmm. uh, that you can't take God seriously because it's not a scientific hypothesis? 
well, what's your reason for saying that we should only take scientific hypotheses seriously? That's a philosophical position. Mm -hmm. And so we get yeah, very quickly into the position where we shut down important lines of inquiry, and not just theology, ethics, philosophy, all sorts of other areas are sidelined and are ridiculed or looked down on by scientific dogmatists um, for no good reason. Mm -hmm. Because by their own position, they should be giving us a scientific argument for this. And they can't. And they don't. They just assert it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is unfortunate that this is not just held by the atheists. This just seems to be one of the myths of our age, that um, if science doesn't teach it, it's just a matter of opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and this pervades everything. This pervades... Uh, this, this goes everywhere. You'll even find church youth groups um, and Christian young people saying things like, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Mm -hmm. About ethical debates. You know, well, uh, your position of abortion might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And they've just accepted scientism, because if you really ask them, well, is gravity, the law of gravity, is that true for somebody, but not true for somebody else? Well, look at you like you have two heads and say, of course it's not, that, that, that's just a fact. Mm -hmm. and, and they are still being taught in schools that scientific facts are one thing and everything else is mere opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, in the next chapter of your book, you actually talk, in the, obviously we must be going anti-intellectual here because it's all about the problem of having a big brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is Dawkins' central argument against Christianity that, um, that any creator must be more complex than the creation. Mm -hmm. must have more organized complexity than the creation. Uh, and th th this is mildly amusing because uh, organized complexity for Dawkins is a, an arrangement of parts. Um, is a highly improbable ar arrangement of parts, um, maybe towards some end. Now, I mean, on, on any definition of God, he isn't made of parts or metaphysical stuff. You know, he, isn't, he doesn't have components. Um, you know, God is you know, limitless loving power, um, limitless loving sovereignty, um, pure personal power, whatever way you want to put that. Um, and, the, and the terms here are very clear. Um, you know, everybody understands the meaning of these words. Everybody understands the idea here. Um, nobody has ever suggested that God would be in a part. So it would be like, uh, be made of the, I think it's something, uh, is it the equivalent of CPUs, he says, in the God delusion. I mean, that's just a gross caricature of theism. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't really taken the idea seriously. He hasn't given us any reason to think that a mind could only be created or associated with complex physical parts. There's no argument here. And he just throws this out, and, and this is his reason for rejecting theism. Um, and I just find this... It's what I call his big brain assumption that God must be something like a big brain. It makes me wonder what he thinks we think God is. Does he think we think God is ectoplasm or something like that? I have no idea. But it's absurd. It's a terrible argument. David goes into some depth on this, more depth than I do, in his um, atheism's new clothes. Mm. But I mean, it's a terrible argument. And it really just shows that he's not acquainted at all with theism. Um, you know, well, there's only 20 centuries worth of, of Christian theism. Um, you think, you know, you might have encountered, you know, or tried to dip his toe 
whether one or two of the books that have been produced over that period of time. But no, there's no sign of that. He just asserts that God must be much more complex than his creation, and therefore God cannot uh, work uh, as a good explanation for the universe that we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm told several people about it. If you read a start on the arguments for God's existence, he starts with the five ways of Aquinas. And when I'm arguing with people, I tell them, I'm absolutely sure of one thing. Dawkins has never once picked up and read Aquinas himself. Because if he had, the very next chapter is the start of explaining God's simplicity, which directly deals with his Boeing 747 argument. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is incredible, really. I mean, the, you know, the divine simplicity, I mean, certainly divine simplicity as um, uh, Aquinas would understand. I would take a different line. To some extent, I'm following theists like uh, Richard Swinburne and uh, uh, some extent, he's maybe even carved out in my understanding of divine simplicity. Aquinas' understanding of simplicity is more radical still. Uh, and Dawkins makes no attempt to engage that. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes no attempt to engage any of these things at all. Uh, makes no attempt even to engage Richard Swinburne. Uh, and he's at least read Richard Swinburne's As There God. So he has made no attempt to engage this idea of divine simplicity or what profess mean by divine simplicity. What he would really need is some sort of argument um, that shows that you cannot have a mind without a brain. But I, I don't know how that argument would go. Mm-hmm. Um, because God, by definition, uh, is outside nature and above nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, God is transcendent. Uh, and therefore, to say, well, every mind we see within the universe is associated with uh, a brain, uh, it tells us absolutely nothing about something that could be tra- tra- transcend this universe. It tells us there's, there's no data there that, that influences what we can predict about a transcendent creator. Uh, and like I say in the book here, you know, these ideas are um, very clear. The idea of you know, unlimited power is very clear. And there's quite a lot of logic and philosophical uh, work in terms of logic that's going on in omnipotence. But the idea of unlimited power is very clear. The idea of, of there being no limits on God's knowledge is a very clear idea. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a being of, of limitless personal power, I mean, we all know what it is to have the, the ability to choose, the power to choose. So we all know what agency is, because we have direct experience of agency. So the idea of, of an agent with limitless personal power is very conceptually clear. We understand the concepts. Not only that, but it's practically useful. Um, because cognitive scientists now basically say, well, look, we tend to think of other people as, uh, as uh, our non-physical agents. That's just how we tend to think of others, and we make predictions about on the basis of what another person would desire, what another person would want and would wish. You know, we assume that other people have free will. Now, that does not mean cognitive scientists are not saying that 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 proves we have a solo, we really have free will. They're not saying that at all. They're just saying it's useful. It's a very mm-hmm. useful way to think. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would tend to dismiss this as folk psychology as something that should be taken as literally true, but they concede and say it's useful. This is a useful belief. So what have we got here? Agent's explanations are philosophically clear and practically useful. Mm-hmm. Well, what more do you want out of an explanation? Mm-hmm. You know, if that sort of explanation can explain large-scale features of our universe and can explain the detail of my life, 
um, then I have got a very good, powerful explanation that I need to take seriously. So what the argument against theism is, I don't know. An excellent book, actually, just to go back to Aquinas' idea of simplicity, which was different than the one that I would be articulating and defending, uh, would be Edward Fesser's The Last Superstition, mm-hmm. which is an excellent book coming from the uh, Thomistic perspective. Oh, yeah. uh, and I'm sort of a let a thousand flowers to moon kind of guy. I don't like the idea of Christians narrowing themselves down into one particular school of thought. And I think where I really enjoy Fesser is as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate somebody who can take really abstract, difficult ideas uh, and, and make them engaging and exciting and, and relatable. Uh, and if, if you want to see a critique of Dawkins from the Thomistic point of view, uh, Edward Fesser's The Last Superstition is a fantastic place to start. Uh, he would take the more radical definition of simplicity, um, or what you might call the classical definition of simplicity. It depends on your point of view. But uh, and again, I mean, that is a real rip-roaring attack on new atheism, and it is tr- a tremendous read, and it's great fun. Um, so if somebody wants to see an alternative to my big brain uh, critique of Dawkins, uh, Fesser's book's a great place to start. Yeah, and you can't help but enjoy a book where the author says that Richard Dawkins would hardly know the difference between metaphysics and metamuser. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh, the, the lines are fantastic. Some of them are unrepeatable, unrepeatable on a broadcast. <laughs> 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 I mean, I wouldn't say one or two of them. But uh, by and large, it's generally, I mean, it's, it's a very, very amusing and uh, hard-hitting attack on the atheism. And to be fair, these targets deserve to be hit hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think if he was, and I think in his blog, he, he was a little bit embarrassed about this at times, that um, he's described as a polemicist now because the book is so hard-hitting. But it, it just reads like a man who's lost his patience and, uh, and I think that the fair part of Edward Fesser had, but I mean, he really does turn off and start very quickly, just in terms of, like, you're saying atheism is obviously true, and here's an entire intellectual tradition that you haven't even discussed. Mm-hmm. You know, you've fundamentally misunderstood. You've just really raised it, and this argument against Thomism really is, well, it's an old idea, we don't need to worry about it. about how he doesn't interact with Swinburne or whatever. I, I can't help but think about a blog post I wrote oh, a few years or so ago where I called it the shoddy research of a new atheist and I said just go to their books, open up, okay now go to the back, go to the bibliography look and see how many of their opponents, their real opponents they interact with. You could, you probably don't even need to use more than two hands to count the number. All they do is they quote their own authorities, the people that already agree with him, and say, see, the case has been made. And with Dawkins, I get the impression that instead of reading, reading Aquinas or Swinburne or anyone else like that, he just read the Wikipedia entries on them. <laughs> yeah, that would be my impression. He did review Swinburne as their god some time ago. Um, but, I mean, his, his, his arguments uh, against Swinburne and 
his, the arguments for his atheism really haven't changed over the years at all. I mean, there's nothing really new in, in the God delusion. Um, I mean, in terms of polemics, you know, it, 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 I mean, it, it's a, a good polemic, I suppose, you know, the politicians might have married. Um, but uh, in terms of compared to his other scientific writing, I mean, I have to say I enjoy some of, some of Dawkins' scientific writing. I enjoy some of it tremendously. Um, climbing went to the probable in the ancestors' tale, two tremendously well-written, entertaining books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just don't find that clarity of thought in the God delusion, um, yeah. perhaps because he hasn't thought about it in the same depth. I mean, if you picked up a copy of, say, The Blind Watchmaker, you know, I wasn't fully convinced by the argument, but it was yeah. well written, it was well thought out. I mean, if you didn't know the same person's name was on the cover, you'd and you saw The God delusion yeah. read it afterwards, you wouldn't be thinking. Hey, this is by the same guy. Yeah, I actually think Brendan well, Probable and uh, Ancestor Taylor better than, than, than Blind Watchmaker, but Blind Watchmaker itself, obviously, again, was, was much better than, than the goal of delusion. Uh, because, again, of his Dawkins area of expertise, and it's an area that he's thought about. And he's obviously, I mean, this is obviously a very gifted and intelligent man. Um, one of the things that you could, because Dawkins can explain an idea simply. You know, I think it was Einstein who said if you can't under, if you can't explain an idea simply, you haven't understood it yourself. And I think what Einstein was also trying to say that if there are some ideas here in physics that we just haven't got our ideas our heads around because we can't explain them simply, some ideas people are going to struggle with. Mm-hmm. But you know, obviously when you apply that test to Dawkins, he you know he knows his stuff. He can take really really difficult abstract ideas of an evolutionary theory about the unit of selection uh, and he can write, take those and, and write the selfish gene. I mean, that, that is an extraordinary achievement if you look at what he managed to do with the, the selfish gene to turn that into a bestseller, to take ideas that seem so disconnected from everyday life mm-hmm. and are not really into a cultural phenomenon with something else. So we're talking about a man of considerable ability here. Um, I just, and in some ways you couldn't praise his writing highly enough. But uh, the God delusion, I, I, it, it just seems to be like a collection of his worst prejudices against religion put into one volume. Mm-hmm. Entertaining, certainly, but uh, not at all convincing. Mm-hmm. You did mention there are people that he, that he, you know, he doesn't interact with his critics. One thing that I found particularly annoying, I mean, David Martin would have been called Christian, Does Christianity Cause War? Um, David Martin's a, a social scientist um, and a fairly eminent social scientist and uh, he wrote this largely in response to some of Dawkins um, sound bites about Christianity and theism and religion and war and, and you know, there's no, again no response here from Dawkins at all. This would be the book where you'd be expecting a serious academic to make some sort of response and to say here's why I think that my critics are wrong. It's just nowhere to be seen. It's not there. You know, he had exchanges with Michael. For example, there's an exchange with Michael Poole in Christians and Science about Christianity and theism. And, and again, you know, Poole doesn't get a mention in, in the book. Um, so, again, we're not talking about somebody here who is seriously thinking through an idea. But, of course, that's the atheism selling point. The atheism selling point is that... Uh, have a feeling of intellectual superiority without any of the hard work that you normally associate with that. Mm. Uh, you know, never, you know, never mind the depth, feel, feel the width of our sound bites. And um, this really seems to be what's going on here in New Atheism. That's 
the nature of the product, unfortunately. Okay. Now, in the next chapter, you start interacting with uh, Greta Christina, and it's all about where the evidence is. So, what, what's going on with what Greta's saying? Oh, yeah, Greta Christina, yeah, extraordinary. You know, she said that uh, she responded to the idea that, uh, you know, a few of her critics had come back to her and said, look, you're an atheist, but you shouldn't be an atheist because you can't prove that there isn't a God. You don't have any evidence that there isn't a God. And she came back and said, well, you never get 100% proof for anything in science. You know, you never get, you know, there's always the logical possibility that you're wrong, but we should look for some reasonable degree of certainty. To which I have to say, man, I'll go with that definition. You know, I, I'm more than happy, you know, as a matter of fact, she's made a point that many Christian apologists have been trying to make for years for us, mm. which is, you know, if we're looking for absolute deductive, apodictive proof, uh, you know, it's not there for anything, including the existence of other minds or the idea that we're living in the matrix. You can't prove those ideas are wrong, mm. uh, deductively, logically. What we need to look for here is just the best explanation. And, um, yeah, I'm more than happy for Greta Christina to make that point for us. Let's look at the best explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, Greta Christina is very good at making statements like, uh, in the article I reference, I think she makes a statement like, you know, I, I studied religion at university and I can tell you that the, the arguments for God's existence aren't very good, shouldn't be taken seriously, and then never says why. Yeah. <laughs> You're thinking, well, you know, what exactly is the problem with Greta? Could you explain that to us? Yeah. She thinks that Darwin undermines the design argument. Again, you know, Darwinism, for Darwinism to work, I mean, I would suggest that people go to our website and look at some of the arguments that David and I have put together on Darwinism. Um, the, you know, Darwinism still begs a number of questions, even if it was true. You know, right universe, right laws, you know, right chemistry, plus a series, you know, lots and lots of little bits of luck, which mm-hmm. multiplies out to a very, you know, very, very improbable, uh, plus some extraordinarily improbable events over the history uh, of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. So you know, the idea that Darwinism somehow undermines the design argument or explains it away seems um, an extraordinarily weak idea. That I don't find it convincing at all, in any sense. Uh, and quite why Christians are so afraid of it, I don't know. They just seem to have bought the sound bite that somehow it undermines design. Mm-hmm. I just don't see that at all. We're, we're nearing about the halfway point of our show, so I'd like to remind everyone that this is the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters. My guest today is Graham Veal. Now, if you're listening next week, we're scheduled to have Matthew Flanagan on, and we're going to be talking about God in the Old Testament and the morality that we have going on in the Old Testament, the wars, the conquests of the Canaanites, uh, issues of slavery, things of that sort. I'm going to be asking, is this a problem for a good and loving God concept? How do we reconcile this, supposedly, with Christianity? So I hope you'll be back next week when we talk about this. But for now, we're going to be continuing our discussion with Graham Veer on the New Atheism Survivor's Guide. Now, when you were talking about evolution, how it's supposed to be a problem of design, I can help but think, since we were talking about Edward Fessler just now, he'd probably recommend a book such as From Aristotle to Darwin and Back Again by Gerson, and how he says that uh, in the book that Gerson says, it's actually not the case at all that 
evolution avoids design, avoids teleology. It's all about teleology, about finding the proper instincts, because evolution is all about bringing about the best creature through reproductive means, the most fit creature to survive. It's actually very design-oriented, at least in the sense that Aquinas understood design. Yeah, I think that uh, Basser's definitely worth reading or not. Um, I think when a lot of evolutionary uh, scientists hear that, you know, talk about teleology, what they say, well, we've got rid of teleology, and they haven't really understood what Aquinas meant by that. I mean, Aquinas would say that there was, you know, there's a teleology via raindrop. Mm-hmm. You know, that the things move towards ends, and you know, there's Thomistic understandings of the laws of nature, and mm-hmm. and so that point needs to be the subtlety of that point needs to be understood before somebody would reject that, or before an atheist would reject that. Um, you know, things in nature seem to have ends. Um, and, and seem to have purpose and seem to have a particular, you know, and, and really it, 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 it boils down to the fact that there's order and rationality and purpose going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, there's no, no sense to you undermine, even if you're not going to be down that domestic route, again, you've got to postulate a lot of, you know, once, but as I say in my book, you've got lots of lots of knocks. So if you take Dawkins' idea of wondering up mind and probable, um, he says if you stand at the bottom of the cliff and you look up, the idea of making that leap in one round is impossible. But what you don't realise on the other side of the cliff is there's a gentle slope. Uh, and if you just simply walked around to the other end of that slope, you could make your way up that one step at a time till you reach the summit. He says evolution's like that. If you start with the first sales and you look at human beings, well, one leap seems impossible. But if you go around to the other side and you look at evolution, if you look at the gradual steps, you'll need a little bit of luck at each stage. Well, that, that explains how we reach the top. We only need a little bit of luck at each stage. Well, there are two problems here. Any high school student should know that if you multiply 99% or 99 out of 100 by itself enough, you get a very, very small number indeed. And so you've got all these little steps that we have to go up. You know, you've got to get the right machinery for making ATP, all sorts of things mm-hmm. to get complex creatures like us. So all those little bits of luck actually multiply out, out to a very small number indeed. Uh, and that point was made by Elliot, Elliot Sober in a review of Simon Conway Morris's book. And, and he was, uh, Conway, Elliot Sober, as I understand it, is an atheist, an agnostic positive. So it seems like an atheist to me. Probably the design argument's most penetrating critic, uh, and he makes this point uh, not in response to Dawkins, but to Simon Conway Marsh. You know, these small amounts of luck multiply out. They have, they have very, they have a lot of luck, but then you also have these events uh, like the origins of the first eukaryotic cell, uh, which are you know, extraordinarily improbable. Um, you know, Nick Lane would be a, a science writer in in. In, in England, who, who who writes on this, and it's worth looking at him at just you know just how improbable it was that we would get eukaryotic cells, and yet without them, you're simply not going to get anything you know more interesting than bacteria. Like bacteria, very interesting things, I'm sure, but um, you know you're just not going to get complex you know uh, multicellular life that we understand. And so you need you know, once you get natural selection on a planet, you know um, that, that doesn't give you human beings. So Dawkins' response to this is to say, well, there are billions and billions and billions of planets out there. 
with the black woman. And we just happen to live on the one that got lucky. Mm. To which you have to say two things. First of all, where's your evidence for these billions and billions of words? Mm-hmm. Uh, Earth-like plants, yes, the universe might be vast, uh, but if it's, you know, if the odds are trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions to one against life like ours being here, you know, we might not have the planets out there. I mean, Earth-like planets seem uh, abundant when you look at NASA's site, but, and then when you look at it in a bit more detail, you find out that Venus counts as an Earth-like planet, you realize, you know, we need something a bit more. Uh, but the second thing is, Dawkins assumes that there's billions and billions of life, Earth-like planets out there, and then tells us what life is like on them. He tells us that, well, you know, when some of them, it, 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 it's only, you know, most of them will only be one-celled creatures, bacteria, and, and then a few more, and a tiny, tiny proportion of those will have eukaryotic cells, and then a, a tiny, tiny proportion more will have, you know, complex multicellular life, and then there'll be a tiny, tiny, much, much smaller proportion just like us. Uh, where's your evidence for this? Mm-hmm. If you went out to these Earth-like planets and found them teeming with multicellular complex life, animal life, um, all over the place, then, then that would undo your hypothesis, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, so he just imagines that all enough planets are there and then tells what life is like on them. But mm-hmm. that is, you know, that's armchair science. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary to see somebody like Richard Dawkins. Um, you know, he's, he's an exponent of scientism resorting to armchair philosophy. But that's exactly what's going on here. And it's a very, very, very weak objection to the design argument. Um, we have to work with the evidence that's in front of us. And uh, the evidence that we can see is that we are surrounded with order, an unlikely amount of order. Um, we're surrounded with beauty. We're designed with laws. We're surrounded with all these things that we should not expect. And uh, working on the observations that we have, we have to come up with the best possible explanation. Um, and we shouldn't be inventing um, a different set of evidence to explain, which is effectively what Dawkins had. He can't explain the evidence in front of him. So he invents a set of evidence which better fits his assumptions. It's interesting. We start talking about this because the very next chapter in your book is all about accepting some claims without real evidence. You start talking about this story in 1861 about a boat, a whaling boat called the Star of the East, and a man named James Bartby gets knocked out of the boat somehow, and he's actually swallowed by a whale that is pulled out of the water, and they find out that he's inside and he's still alive, and this story is even reported in the Times, and so everyone's going, oh, here, here's proof that this happened, that this is a, a real deal. There, there's a little problem with the story, though, isn't there? Yeah, the story isn't true. <laughs> that, that's a, it's a minor detail, isn't it? It's a minor detail. It's a fantastic story, and it's a wonderful story. Uh, unfortunately, in the 18th century, um, or the 1800s, when this was written, newspapers, um, maybe a bit more like the Weekly Standard than Time magazine, you know, they, they tended to report tall tales um, to, to boost circulation. Maybe that still happens today, you can say. But, um, no, there were, this was supposed to happen off the Falkland Islands, and there were no whaling ships off the Falkland Islands at the time. You know, the details of the story don't fit. The mm-hmm. details of the story just do not match up. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to compare theism to... The sorts of way out, wacky explanations that the tinfoil beheaded like. 
that they, for your conspiracy theories, you know, like for example, that MI5 killed Princess Diana. Um, things like uh, uh, cryptozoology, I look at the, the, the flying spaghetti monsters compared to Nessie in the first chapter. Um, Holocaust denial as well. And to try and look at what's wrong with these crazy explanations and then compare them to good explanations. Uh, and then see that theism is much more in common with the good explanation than it does with the conspiracy theory or the, or the uh, you know, the, the monster hunters sort of uh, monster quest uh, approach to science. Uh, and the story of James Barton, I think, is just too good to resist. You know, that, that uh, I was raised with the idea that a, that a, a whaling ship had, had actually found a man and he had been swallowed by a whale. It, it, you know, it, it could technically happen, much more likely than somebody would call it in the mouth of a whale or something like that. Uh, but there's been no recorded instances of this happening. Um, and again, the story of James Bartlett, um, you know, a bit, it's an, an evangelical urban myth. Um, that seems to be tied back to the story of this James Bartlett chap. Um, the one thing that did come out of it for me, though, with that story, as I would through the story of James Bartlett, is that the Book of Jonah is a horror story. <laughs> when you look at the idea, especially for somebody living in the ancient world, where they were aware of these creatures but hadn't studied them in any depth, uh, the idea of being eaten alive at a time when there were still wild animals wandering around Israel and being eaten alive by a an old bear or a lion was still a very real possibility for people. Mm. Uh, the story of Jonah should, would have been terrifying, uh, yet we tend to tell it to Sunday school kids um, uh, the same way we would talk about you know, Little Red Riding Hood and Pinocchio. And I think one of the things that we maybe need to do in evangelicalism is get them back to taking the literature of the Bible a bit more seriously. Uh, Jonah was not a, a child's tale by any stretch of the imagination. This is, this is pretty much ancient horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I go on from there and look at the resurrection. Yeah, well, when we were talking about this, I also have to think that we've been critical about atheism, but this is a sad time where we need to be critical about our own side. Because recently on Facebook, for instance, there's been this story that's been going around about how a, a pagan eyewitness account has been found of Jesus doing a miracle, and so many Christians I saw were sharing it, except where it's from a satire website and it really is very discouraging because a lot of atheists will look and say where well, see there you go christians get fooled so easily by this yeah i mean i think the credulity the credulity of christians is uh, astounds me sometimes i mean that's why i did spend a good proportion of the book actually i'm actually a very skeptical character mm-hmm. uh, if somebody comes to me with a story uh, like this, I want to see two, three sources. I want to check it against things. Um, uh, you know, the, the Christians, I think, sometimes just want to make the wild conclusions so long as it, 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 it coheres with their worldview. And mm-hmm. I had actually at times we border on cynicism, um, but I'm actually a very skeptical character. Um, mm-hmm. For Christianity to to be convincing to me, it had to pass a very, very serious. Yes, when I was a teenager, uh, you know, uh, trying to work out if, if what if the beliefs that I had held as a child should be carried on into adulthood. You know, I was a very skeptical person to convince. Uh, as any, if you're an anxious person, you, know, you will want a high standard of proof. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I do spend a lot of time in the book trying to just trying to establish the game. I'm very skeptical of a lot of these things. For example, a lot of this monster. Um, you, you know, I spend. 
I wish I had an hour to talk about NASA. You know, nobody wants to talk about NASA, but I, this is a preposterous story. Um, and I'm highly, highly skeptical of a lot of the things I've been hearing there. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, there are Christians out there who are more than happy to take the latest report of, you know, a brontosaurus in the jungle of uh, in the Congo and say, look, there's evidence that, um, you know, creation was recent. And, you know, at times you put your head in your hands and you just think, oh, please stay off my side. <laughs> yeah, and when we get to the historical Jesus and about the claims that are made with him, Mm-hmm. It, sounds, it really amazes me when I read some of the non-Christian scholars. Uh, one I was discussing recently with an atheist online was talking about John Dominic Crossan. He was yeah. a fine scholar, but when I read his book on uh, it, in rather his section of the book, Five Views on Historical Jesus, and he was talking about Jesus' ministry, I was left saying, the problem I have with this Jesus is, there's no way this Jesus would get crucified. He's not a threat to anyone. He's... Kind of like yeah. a hippie type going around saying, peace and love, everyone, peace and love. Yeah, yeah, so you know, how's that guy going to annoy the Roman authorities? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Roman authorities were quite used to cynical philosophers and could live with cynical philosophers. And, and, you know, if you want to walk about with your staff and your bag and tell people that poverty is a good thing and don't resist the authorities, well, the Romans would have loved that. Yeah. Uh, why, why would they want to get involved in that? And, and the Jewish authorities were used to... Well, used to, to, to whacking people and, and people with strange ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other Jesus, um, the person of Jesus, was scourged, uh, not Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus, uh, and I don't know, I can't remember correctly, but he'd been before the, the walls of Jerusalem. He walked around Jerusalem and said, Woe unto you, Jerusalem. Yeah. Before the wall of Jerusalem. And uh, eventually, the Jewish authorities didn't go out of their way to have him killed. He was scourged. He continued with his prophecy. Um, and he was making a politically dangerous threat. Um, and yet, he survived the scourging. And eventually, it was a Roman uh, missile, launched from Ballista, that seems to have done for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Jewish authorities were used to wacky people, too. So somebody simply going around and acting like a silly sage, like he said, it's just not going to get himself crucified. Um, but he is very palatable to the 21st century, where you know, a non-threatening Jesus who doesn't expect us to do much except take it a bit easier um, and chill out a bit more. Um, you know that that's the sort of Jesus that we would like. I think when Jesus becomes comfortable, um, something has gone wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and anybody should know that. Anybody who looks at history should know that you understand the past in its own terms. You recreate that world and understand the world of the past on its own terms. Uh, And you can learn from the past, and they can show you different ways of seeing things, but if there's not something shocking about it, if it feels too familiar, something's going wrong. Uh, And I think that that would be a criticism of a number of reconstructions of Jesus. Reza Aslan's, um, I I think the, the, the criticism that would be made there is that it's not that he retold Jesus as an Islamic Jesus because he doesn't follow Islam's traditional teaching about Jesus. You know, Islam believes that Jesus was crucified, for example. Mm-hmm. But he sounds scurrily like Muhammad. You know, the, the historical Muhammad, the historical Jesus and the historical Muhammad sound very, very similar. Uh, and again, you're beginning to think there that, um, you know, if, if he had applied the same stuff, for example, in his book, No God But God, you know, he takes the Islamic sources on, on Muhammad at, at pretty much the same val- at face value. 
yet they were written at a greater distance from the historical Muhammad than the sources that we have in Jesus. And, and I'm just not clear as to why he is so credulous of one and incredulous towards the other. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but again, whenever Jesus begins to sound, and that's a warning to evangelicals too. Yeah. Whenever you're preaching Jesus or whenever you're going to the Gospels, um, if you take the Incarnation seriously, God became man in Palestine in the first century. He did not become man in California or Belfast in the 21st century. <laughs> and unless you understand Jesus in those terms, mm-hmm. you're not taking the Incarnation seriously. And unless Jesus is saying things and, and preaching things that you find shocking and offensive and strange, something has gone wrong in your preaching. Mm-hmm. Because we're talking about you know, God became incarnate at a particular time and in a particular place for a reason. And there's going to be upsets there for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's going to be a different outlook on the world there that we have to begin to confront. Uh, and I think in too many of the sermons that we hear, Jesus sounds like our Sunday school teacher. Yeah. Something's going wrong. Something's going wrong in evangelical circles too. So the historical Jesus is an important topic. Um, the difference between the Gospels and the story of James Bartlett, I mentioned that when you look at the, begin to look at the details of the Bartlett story, you begin to discover things like there were no whaling ships um, near the Falkland Islands at that time. Uh, when you begin to look at the historical Jesus, you can't understand the Gospels unless you understand the details of that particular time and place in, in, in Palestine. Uh, you can't begin to understand Jesus if you don't understand first century Judaism, Palestinian Judaism. You don't understand the story of Zacchaeus unless you realize that it was only at that particular time in, in Palestine's history that there would have been tax collectors in Jericho. Uh, and until you begin to see where the details match out, and rather than the more background information you get, the more the Gospels are illuminated. Mm-hmm. Rather than these far fetched stories, the more details you get, the less plausible the story seems. And the, the opposite is the true of the Gospels. Evangelical scholars aren't afraid of finding out more about first century Palestine. They want to know as much as possible because it helps them understand the Gospels. It helps them understand the text. Uh, the uniform experience seems to be that this, this makes the text more credible. Not less credible, but more credible. Um, and so the historical Jesus, you know, it, it, you know this, this does need to be taken quite seriously by evangelicals and by skeptics. Skeptics need to be challenged by Jesus but evangelicals need to realize that um, no, this, this is history you're doing. You need to take this mm. seriously. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and we are supported by listeners like you. I don't get paid anything for this podcast. I'm not able to pay my guests to come on to this podcast. So everything done here is free. And I would highly encourage you, if you're enjoying the fruits, of what we do here, please consider taking part in the harvesting. We really need you. Now, if you're wondering how you do something like that, where you can go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com, and that's my blog, there's a link there, a donation link. You can find it pretty easily. And when you click it, that will take you actually to the ministry of Risen Jesus, which is the ministry of Mike Lacona, and they work with us here. And what you do from there is you just make your donation, or even better than that, set up so you can be a monthly donor. Then my email is on my blog. You can email me, or you can email 
Debbie Lacona, who's the financial guru behind Risen Jesus, and say, hey, I made a donation. I made it to Nick Peters of Deeper Waters, and I want to make sure it goes to him. And she will make sure we get that. It will be tax deductible. Risen Jesus is a 501c3, and they work very closely with us here at Deeper Waters. So I highly encourage you to go that route. And then I've also got ebooks out. The latest one is still Defining Inerrancy. The response my ministry partner and I wrote to the criticisms of Norman Geisler. And I've got another one coming out that I've actually written with an atheist together. It's going to be called God and Natural Disasters. It's a dialogue we had on the problem of natural disasters. Is this a defeater for God? And then finally on my blog page, you'll find a link to the Amazon store. And yeah, I still need to update it. But many of the books that we talk about in this podcast and such, you can buy them there. And when you buy them through the Amazon store, we will get a small proceeds from what you buy. So, I mean, if you're going to buy a good book and it's going to be the same amount and some of it is going to go and help out a ministry, well, geez, why not just go that way? I really encourage you to donate, people. It is incredibly important. It keeps us going and it shows me how much that you also appreciate the podcast. And along those lines, please go to our iTunes page and leave a review of the Deeper Waters podcast. It really means a whole lot. It's very encouraging to see those reviews. Now, uh, Graham, do you have any ministry you'd like to encourage people to donate to? Well, the Saints and Skeptics website, um, there's a, 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 an option there to donate to us. Um, mm. uh, my understanding is that nobody has donated to us ever. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> that, um, maybe it says more about Ireland than anything else. We, we um, take pockets in Northern Ireland. But uh, there is a donate. You people can't donate these there uh, if they want to support the work of saints and skeptics. Uh, uh, you know, David and I would be trying to. We, we, there's an advanced page that, that shows the sort of work that we try to do around churches in Northern Ireland. Uh, that people uh, find the work that we do valuable, and we'd like to see that continue in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. or find the work that we provide on the website valuable. Uh, then there is an opportunity to donate to us there. Uh, our website is in need of an overhaul. It's only been there two years, but uh, if anybody would like to do that, we'll see it's a skeptics website that looked that little bit better and to be a little bit better advertised, then that's the place to go to. Yeah, so listen up here, people. If if you donate to Saints and Skeptics, family, you can have the honor of being the first person to make a donation. <laughs> you will. <laughs> yeah, well, apart from, from me, I think I technically do need this once, but um, apart from that, yeah, I think when the only donors are me and Dave. Um, so uh, clean our website. Uh, if you want to see our website about more spree stuff, that would be a good place to go to. You know, the next chapter in the book begins with a story that I find simply hysterical when I oh. read it. And I think it needs to be explained. This is about the historian David Irving, who was a Holocaust denier. And apparently he was very good on the stand at defending his views. Can you tell us the story some? Oh yes, well David Irving was uh, he, he he wrote a book called Hitler's War, which um, was uh, historians liked Hitler's War because uh, Irving was a great admirer of Adolf Hitler and thought Adolf Hitler was a, one of the great men of history, and I suppose that book really gave us Hitler's perspective on the war. At least that's why some historians liked it. Um, I suppose if Adam Hitler was ever going to have written a book saying about why I made the decisions I did, 
this was the book to go to. Uh, but in that book, Irving began the myth, or, or went along with the myth, that Hitler didn't really know too much about the Holocaust. Uh, as a matter of fact, Hitler knew nothing about the Holocaust. Um, that there was never a systematic attempt to eliminate the Jews of Europe. There may have been atrocities on the Eastern Front, uh, but then again, the Allies bombed Hamburg, the Allies bombed Dresden. And so Irving was trying to make Hitler morally equivalent uh, to the Allies. Uh, he was called out on this by, by uh, the author Deborah Lips, that historian, and she, she um, or she's a political scientist actually, not a historian, and she called Irving a, a, a Holocaust denier in her book, which he is, and it remains to be to this day, as I understand it. Um, Irving uh, took her to court. He took her to court for this statement. Um, but the historians that uh, defended uh, Deborah and Lipstadt um, were very, very competent. They brought in Richard Evans, for example, who's been a three-volume history on the, on the Third Reich, has written a book defending history, top-level scholar. Uh, Peter Longrich, uh, who, you know, he's written a biography there of Heinrich Himmler that I've just read. I mean, these were top-level scholars. Uh, they picked Irving the bits. Um, well, in his summation then, as, as Irving was giving his, his summation at the end, was that he was his own barrister, he represented himself, uh, and as he began to, to, to defend himself to the, the judge and was to giving a summation of the defense, you know, he was saying, Your Honor, the one reason that you have to find this woman guilty is this, and Your Honor, another reason is that. And then his mind wandered from his script and he began to call Your Honor, and my Fuhrer, you have to find this woman guilty, and, um, you know, Apparently, at the time, people were just, it was like a double take, because the film was like an episode, it was like a scene from Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> um, you know, we know, my Fuhrer, I can walk. Um, it, it, was, it, it was typical of the man. I think it showed the stress he was under at the time. But, you know, Irving was, uh, I think what people find difficult is that he made a number of claims about, really, in some ways, based on science. He was basically trying to say, well, look, scientifically, it was impossible for Zyklon B to kill that many people. Uh, it was impossible to transport as, ma you know, as many people as you suggest on the railway lines to kill that many people. Uh, and he was basically, in some ways, trying to pit science against eyewitness testimony. Um, uh, and really, the fact of the matter is that our eyewitness testimony is that good, that, um, uh, and we have so much of it that uh, any attempt here for a perfect to undermine that, you know, on the basis of science, you, you automatic assumption should have been there's something wrong with your science. Uh, and as it's turned out subsequently, there has been. Um, but people find his equations monstrous. You know, they were, you were sitting in court listening to how many, you know, basically how many hundred children could you fit in that uh, train car? Uh, and how many long would it take them to die? And and one journalist described it like problems from a, from a math book from hell. You know, if so many children are transported in so many trains and so many hours, how many will be left at the end alive at the end of twenty four hours? Um, Richard Evans in his book Telling Lies About Hitler, uh, about the Irving Travel, is an excellent book. Um, he said that actually he found that he needed the emotional curtains to be closed. He found it helpful 
Some people were looking at it and thinking this is monstrous, but he said, no, I needed to put, close those curtains because getting a motive suited Irving, you know, making, if I got, a, you know, emotional and, and, and at the start of, of uh, Evan's testimony, he was very angry with, with Irving. He considered him to be a bit of a fraud. Um, but he said, though, the emotions, heightened emotions suited Irving, this needed to be dealt with calmly and clinically, and to protect my testimony, and to protect my own sanity, I needed to draw the emotional curtains. But of course, to understand the Holocaust, we have to open our emotional curtains again, though. Uh, and that's the point that I'm trying to make in that chapter, is that, yes, sometimes we can look at theism and Christian theism dispassionately. Um, we can close the emotional curtains and look at the arguments um, like outsiders to Christianity to see if it, if it holds true. Now, if we can do that with the Holocaust, we can do that with religion. Mm. But to really understand an event, to really understand Christianity, we do have to open our emotional curtains. We do need to engage with the message of the gospel. Uh, we have to deal with things like religious experience, religious experiences. And, um, and so in that, the last few chapters, really, I open the emotional curtains and I begin to argue that that the gospel makes sense, um, that the emotional side of Christianity, if you like, makes sense too. It's rational. Uh, and and you know, the call of the gospel is a rational experience that you should respond to. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of this is also responding to a certain atheist who really likes to see his name out there, who's come up with something called the outsider test for faith, isn't it? Oh, yes, that's right, um, Mr. Loftus. John, I, John, I called John, call John an honorary Irishman at one stage um, uh, for his ability to blarney. Um, you can do it better than me. Um, the outsider test is meant to be the idea that if you, are, you only believe in Christianity because you were raised as a Christian, would be his argument because you were raised in a Christian culture, um, which ignores the fact that we live in a secular culture in which a person does have to make an effort to be religious. But that would be a commonly accepted fact. You do have to make an effort to be a religious person in our culture. Uh, but John um, just puts this to the side and says that you know, you're only a Christian because you were raised by a Christian. But if you approached it like an outsider, um, you know you would find that Christianity is not true. You would abandon your beliefs. So Christianity fails the outsider test. At that stage, you do feel like saying to John Lawrence, "Have you heard a peer review?" Because a lot of the Christian scholars who are publishing arguments in defense of theism and defense of Christianity are writing to peer-reviewed journals mm-hmm. where their critics are quite often atheists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the articles pass muster. Yep. Um, but also, let's take this, um, let, let, let's look at this assumption that somehow that we are, because we are raised with an idea, we should automatically be highly suspicious of it. Well, I tend to think that liberal democracy is a very good thing. I tend to think that freedom of religion is a very good thing. That's because I've been raised in what might be loosely called a Western democracy. Mm-hmm. If I've been raised in wet North Korea, or if I've been raised uh, in Saudi Arabia, I might have a different set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. But that in no way casts any suspicion on liberal democracy. You know, liberal democracy is a good set of ideas, uh, and it's a good, uh, you know, or perhaps the least worst form of government might be the best way of putting it, but it, it, it's a good, robust way of organizing a society, and it has many benefits, and that, it, it's completely irrelevant whether I was raised in a democracy or not. 
Um, so this idea that somehow I should, should be suspicious of a belief uh, because I was raised with that belief, it's nonsensical. My parents raised me with the belief that I shouldn't be cruel. Should I view that belief with suspicion? Should I approach that belief as an outsider? Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it becomes nonsensical. And uh, this outsider test, it, it, I think it's just another atheist meme, really. Mm-hmm. But that said, the first four chapters of my book um, are uh, written from the perspective of an outsider. The first five chapters, actually, are written from the perspective of an outsider. And let's look at this, and let's look at the evidence, and let's look at it critically and dispassionately. And Christianity passes that outsider test. The problem is that you don't really understand Christianity until you begin to come and try and look at it as an insider, uh, until you begin to understand the claim that God has on your life. Um, Christianity is not for the speculations of the spectator. Uh, It's not an academic exercise. Uh, Christianity is about God calling you to own you because his son died for you. Uh, And that takes some level of emotional engagement to understand correctly. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about beliefs that were raised with, I could just as well say, I was raised with the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and mathematics works, that I can use the English language to communicate with other people. Should I view those ideas with suspicion? Well, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is a, a good response to, to the idea that somehow that uh, natural selection or evolution by natural selection produced us with uh, a set of... We, led to the belief that in God or, or somehow evolution by natural selection can explain religion. Um, well, I'm quite sure that you can come up with an evolution by, uh, evolution by natural selection to explain why human beings believe in mathematics. Okay, there'll be evolutionary explanations there. That doesn't mean that mathematics isn't true. <laughs> you know, the reason that, that, that this belief turns out useful is because it's a true belief. Um, now, you know, if you believe in evolution and you believe in theism, then you believe that God has some sort of control over that. So it wouldn't be remotely surprising that, that religion would be built into our DNA. Um, it also raises the question as to why would this belief turn out to be useful? Um, and um, Susan Blackmore, who you still an atheist, she used to describe religion as a virus because she believed it was harmful and has changed her mind because the evidence has come, more and more evidence has come back through to her that, that, that religion and, and religious commitment is actually good for people. So, you know, this idea that somehow that uh, you come up with an explanation for the origin of a belief, that this somehow makes the belief itself questionable, uh, it doesn't really bear much scrutiny. And that's something I talk about as well in, in that chapter. Now, what you started about also before, and what we've been hitting on a lot, in the final chapter sums it up and that's the the gospel is good news for scoundrels and something of that sort. What exactly are we talking about? I mean what is the main message that the new atheists are arguing against and why is it so incredible? Um the the, the message of the of, of the gospel the 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 said the gospel is good news um a message for good men and scoundrels. Uh, that was, comes off the Phil Pillman book, The Good Man Jesus and the mm-hmm. Scoundrel Christ. Uh, and it was a play on that. But I, I think what, really what I'm trying to get at in that chapter is that Christianity, like I have said, is not a spectator sport. Mm-hmm. It, it needs to be understood as a very powerful existential call to somebody. Um, you know, but when you're becoming a Christian, that that's also profoundly rational. 
So, for example, the idea that we needed God's Son to die for us, um, that we needed that level of sacrifice on God's part, the idea that we um, that, that there's something so fundamentally flawed with us that we needed that sort of act from God, it, it, that's, that's a, a truth claim about the human condition. Mm-hmm. And so when you accept the gospel, you're saying, yes, this message sums me up correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in terms of what I call our spiritual desires, um, the idea that we need that we need uh, purpose, um, that we need love, uh, that we need hope, uh, that we need uh, all sorts of things that only God can provide. Uh, that again is a, a claim that the, that the, the gospel makes about us. Uh, and that, that if we're responding to the gospel, we're saying, yes, this is true of me, this is true of the human condition, this includes me as a human individual. And so whenever you're accepting the gospel, you are making a rational judgment about yourself and mm-hmm. the world. Um, and my point is that this, this irrational judgment makes sense, it makes rational sense. It's not just emotional sense, it's also, you know, rationally a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so the gospel shouldn't be, the idea that apologetics and evangelism are somehow separate doesn't, has never really struck me as plausible. The idea that somehow that apologetics is pre-evangelism, I have never seen it that way. To me, as you explain the gospel, you are continually trying to persuade people that this is true. Uh, you know, that, 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 that this is something you should believe because it's true, because it makes sense of you. Uh, and the idea that apologetics and evangelism can somehow be sealed off from one another, uh, to me, just seems to be absurd. Um, and really, in the last chapter, I'm trying to tie all this together. I'm trying to say that the gospel makes sense of your spiritual desires, of your existential needs, if you like. Um, but it also makes sense of you as a person. Uh, it makes sense of you morally. Um, it makes sense of the fact that we have these high moral standards that we can never reach. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense. It, it gives us the possibility of forgiveness, which is something that we also desperately need. Um, and so the gospel uh, answers so many questions. It has to be taken seriously. And then if you start with the gospel, that God calls you to accept His Son as your as King, as Christ, as Lord of your life, Jesus as Saviour, as Lord. Well, of course, there's a whole lot tied up with that, that there is a God, that there is a Creator, that Jesus died, that this was real, that this happened as history. And as you begin to work back from that call, you begin to see it confirmed by the evidence that sets out in front of you. And when you take the whole package together, it, you, you have good reason to become a Christian. That's really what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. The new atheist response is to sneer. Mm. Um, but I mean I can live with a sneer I'm told they expect a sneer and if all you can hand me is a sneer all you can say well this is foolishness to the wisdom of the Greeks well you know we've been living with that for 2,000 years I can cope with that Uh, and to some extent I can welcome that Um, so that's why the new new atheism to some extent falls down but on another level the new atheism gives me an excuse to talk about the gospel Mm -hmm. it gives me an excuse to explain what I believe 
uh, it maybe makes people who we've never left an evangelistic book left a book responding to atheism. It makes people who we very rarely come into a church, except maybe at Christmas or Easter, um, as an act of duty, will maybe come into a church to hear something about Richard Dawkins. Uh, and so atheism is in many ways mm -hmm. a fantastic opportunity for the church. Um, the, I mean, it, it very much says the Da Vinci Code was a fantastic opportunity. Mm -hmm. We were able to engage many more people with the Da Vinci Code than we would have otherwise. Uh, and I think that atheism is not something to be afraid of. It's something that we should very much welcome and want to engage with and want to respond to. Because there are so many people, Christians in name only, cultural Christians, people who just tag along the church now and then, who are very difficult to, to get a hold of and to grasp and to shake and to say, look, this is important. Um, you also pick up their ears at Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins is so bright, and he's such a fantastic publicist. Uh, and you know, Hitchens as well, he's a fantastic journalist, and Harrison, all these guys are just so loud and brash that they do wake people up, they do make people want to listen to discussions about these ideas. So there's a fantastic opportunity there for the church. Yeah, I actually wrote a blog post a year or two ago on this record that, thank God for the new atheists, that hey, all yeah, these guys... They're opening up the conversation for us. They're getting people to discuss the questions we've tried to get them to discuss time and time again. And now that the new atheism is here, it's being talked about. This is this is a godsend. We should give thanks for it every night. That's exactly the word I was going to use. This is a godsend, uh, mm. and it really is. There are many people in the new atheist camp who are former evangelicals. Mm -hmm. uh, there's even a category called ex-apologists mm -hmm. uh, who seem to feel that the church has somehow let them down. And in some cases, I think evangelicals maybe do have to hold their hands up and say that we became so caught up with emotionalism mm -hmm. that we didn't answer questions, that we didn't deal with people rationally. Um, and so there's an opportunity there to try and to engage with those people again as well. Um, and yes, there, it, 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 it is a fantastic opportunity for the church. Um, and you know, it, it, it shows signs of slowing up at the night. I don't think it's dying. Some people are online thinking it's dead and it's dying. There's, there's absolutely no evidence for that at all. It seems to have reached a saturation point. I think as many people who are going to buy in have bought it. Mm -hmm. I think that they are at the limits of what they can uh, achieve as a you know they've, they've grown as a, to, I think to the limits of their growth at the minute. Uh, I think what will be interesting is what do they do next? Um, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Dawkins is is getting older. Um, you know, will there be younger people who take over? And I think the answer is yes because there's a market there. There's a market of people who want to buy books about atheism, and publishers are going to want to type, pop into that. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I mean, I think it's going to be a ride. I think they're just going, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be a very good thing. We need to stay engaged, and we need to keep responding, and we need to keep the conversation going. It's also important, I think, to point out that the new atheism is, in fact, also lowering the intellectual credibility of our opponents, because they take the weakest, weakest arguments and think they're absolutely brilliant, and the whole time we can be studying up the very best in scholarship and apologetics and other issues, and when the time comes and push comes to shove, we'll be on top academically, intellectually, everything else. Yes, I think 
So what the new atheists do is that they state the assumptions and myths of secularism out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people merely assume that science is the best way or only way of knowing things, or that science is the only credible academic subject, or, or something like that. Most people simply assume that religion is superstition, or that faith is always blind, uh, that faith is always irrational, and people have these assumptions. Um, and you know, again, I was looking at recent uh, court cases in, in, in England uh, on religious freedom and, and Lord Justice Laws in Great Britain said that mm-hmm. makes a statement to the effect of faith is always irrational uh, or, or non-rational; it can never be communicated. Uh, uh, rationally, and it's just New Atheism only in fancier language. The New Atheists do state the assumptions of secularism out loud, brashly and boldly. And I think that embarrasses some atheists. Um, but again, there isn't there a fantastic opportunity? Isn't there an idea, a, a fantastic opportunity to grab these ideas as they say, look, these just don't make, these are just prejudices. These aren't arguments, these are just casual assumptions that have somehow come into your system through osmosis when you were at university or college or wherever you've been, whenever we begin, you begin to argue for them, you're going to have to at least acknowledge, if you're a thinking secularist, that there is an alternative point of view. And then that can get the conversation going. So while the atheists are out there um, making these statements boldly and loudly and brashly, I think that's a good thing for the church. Um, and I think that that's something that we should be quite comfortable with and to some extent, welcome, because it gives us uh, a great opportunity to state our case. When you were talking about the learning by osmosis, I was remembering that uh, uh, maybe about four years ago, four and a half years ago, I was at a Ratio Christie event, which I think the new atheists can be partially credited for bringing about Ratio Christie to the campuses, since they made secularism such an issue there. But anyway, there, we were at an event, my, a friend of mine and I, and Gary Habermas was speaking on the resurrection. During the Q&A, this college student type comes up to challenge him, and Gary just shoots him down on pretty much every single point. My friend tells me, since he was closer to the aisle and heard things, said that when this kid was walking away, he was muttering along the lines of, well, at least I have logic on my side. Yeah, and, and, and that's it, yeah, I mean, you uh, atheism is logical and everything else is illogical, and uh, yeah, yeah that, that's just the casual assumption of the age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who would be casual ter- church attenders, and whenever you begin to press them on the gospel, you ask them, do you believe in God, they'll say yes, do you believe Jesus was the Son of God, you'll say yes. And then when you push them on the gospel and say, well, do you realize that you have to do something about this? Next question, well, how do you know it's true anyway? Mm-hmm. And you, you, you do gradually, well, hang on, you're the guy who said a minute ago you believed it yourself, but what they seem to be saying is, well, I give it a bit of credence, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't bet anything on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that as new atheists begin to, you begin to raise the topic, we can begin to force through to people that, you know, this is something that, uh, that, that needs to be taken seriously. This is a powerful truth claim. This isn't just something mm. that you can just, you know, add to your list of beliefs and approach casually. This is something you're going to have to take very seriously and do something about. 
So there, there's another opportunity for us there to, to approach a particular group of people and, and uh, to get them to wake it up and, and to, to see the consequences of what it means to truly believe in God and to truly believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a problem we can also have if we grow up in a kind of Western culture that when we hear the Bible stories and such growing up, after a while, they, they seem to just become sort of background knowledge for us where we don't realize just how radical and earth-shattering they really are. It's just part of, oh yeah, that's part of our cultural milieu that we all believe, and we don't really yeah. take the time to think about what it would have meant to, say, a first century Jew or Gentile to hear this. Well, I mean, a perfect example of that would be the story of David and Goliath. But mm-hmm. This is something I would mention a lot in school when I'm teaching my first years, 11 and 12 year olds. And um, whenever they hear about David playing Goliath, they get the impression that, that David was a, a young boy, about seven or eight, who brought down a, uh, something like the giant out of Jack and the Beanstalk with a catapult and a tiny little stone. Uh, and they don't realize that the, the ancient world of Slinger could. Um, Throw a very large rock. I mean, the five smooth stones would have been fairly large saucer-sized stones that, if they were to connect with somebody at that sort of speed, would uh, do significant damage to the brain. If there was, um, would shatter a skull if the person wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, you know, David killing Goliath a fairly brutal act, um, and and yet we talk to our children as if this is like Jack and the Beanstalk or or Little Red Riding Hood, uh, and I think really engaging the, the biblical text as historical texts and insisting that we understand the culture in which these texts were written and that we understand what it was like to live in those times. Um, that we understand another example would be whenever I'm talking to people, children uh, about Jesus calming the storm, you, you begin by asking them, if you were in a storm today, what would you do? And you well, I'd take out my mobile phone and I'd phone for the life, certainly you know, I'd phone for a life raft or I'd phone for a helicopter or I'd fire a flare gun. And you really have to take kids back and, and say, well, look, you don't have mobile phones back then. You don't have radios. You don't have flare guns. Mm-hmm. You don't have a, a, a life, a coast guard to come and rescue you. Um, but it occurred to me when I was telling kids this in school that most adults, don't think about the text that way either. It's just a story uh, that they believe is true, but they've never actually stopped and thought what it would be like to be in Galilee in the ancient world on a, on a storm where, where, where none of them, with none of the modern conveniences and, and how powerful and terrifying a storm was to somebody in the ancient world, so much that it was used to represent chaos. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like a threat to the entire universal order. And we really need to get back good historical understanding of the texts and the fact like you said that we've just become comfortable and familiar with these texts and with these stories I, I think has maybe allowed new atheism to get a toehold in, has allowed them to, to, to make a connection with people because perhaps the church hasn't taken the truth of the gospel or the truth of the gospels I should say mm-hmm. seriously enough we haven't engaged them as, as history. Yeah that's um, in my church men's group we've had people talk about how are we saying? Well, if only we could have a faith like Paul. And I've responded, if we're going to have faith like Paul, we have to have a realize how much Paul's worldview was shook by Christianity. And when well, we have yeah. ours shaken that much, we'll have that same faith. Absolutely. I mean, again, you're reading through Colossians at the minute, and you understand what it would have been like for 
for Paul to acknowledge that the Messiah had been crucified. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is going to shatter Paul's brain. That's just completely the opposite of everything he expected. Uh, and, and you can see that throughout Paul's letters, that this has been such uh, an upheaval in, in, in his world uh, and the significance that Christ has from him from that point on. But yes, I mean, it was go- this was not just uh, a case of you being miraculously blinded in a physical upset to Paul, um, or that he just learned the error of his ways. This was a complete reshift in the way that Paul thought about everything. I mean, absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting near the time of the end of our show. When you know the book is New Atheism, a Survival Guide. Just to check, you can find it on Amazon, the paperback is selling right now for ten seventy nine, and the Kindle version is selling for nine ninety nine. Now, Graham, do you have a uh, well? You've talked about some, but that's remind when you have a website or a way that people can reach you if they want to find out more about you and your work. Yes, we're um, on Twitter at at, at skeptics. Mm-hmm. Um, two capital S's there, so at skeptics. On our website is www saintsandskeptics.org so www.saintsandskeptics.org mm-hmm. uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Saints and Skeptics um, and we're happy for people to come through and rummage through our site there's a, there's a contact box on there um, we don't at the minute allow comments on the blog because we don't have the time to read through every comment and give them the response that they would deserve but uh, certainly you can contact us through there's a contact box you can leave comments on and certainly there's the Twitter feed as well and if people have things that they want us to write about or look into or respond to we do our very best to get articles up and respond to people. I should also point out that the way skeptics is spelled on the site is S-C-E-P-T-I-C-S. Yeah, sorry, we went, yeah, yeah, this was a debate when we started, are we going to go American, are we going to go go British, but, or Irish, or English, or whatever you want to call it, we're, uh, yes, we're seeing skeptics, S-C, I think the K still takes you there, but we're we're seeing skeptics with a C. Okay. Uh, Is there uh, any final message you would like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I would just ask people to, to think seriously about the issues that uh, the that atheism puts in front of the church. I would want to remind people who are in churches that if a young person comes to you with an intellectual doubt or an intellectual question, mm-hmm. you respond with only believe or trust in the Lord and lean not on to your own understanding. But what that young person does not hear is a sermon about faith. What they hear is, I don't have time for you and your difficulties. Mm-hmm. And no end of harm has been caused in the church by young people coming, looking for help and an answer, only to be told, or to feel that they have been told, we don't have time for these sorts of difficulties. We don't have time for these problems. Please be aware that young people take that personally. It's mm-hmm. not merely an intellectual objection. It is a personal problem that deserves a thoughtful response. Okay. Well, Grant, it's been really good having you on, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Okay, that's good. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to be having Matthew Flanagan on, and we're going to be talking about the Old Testament and the God that's portrayed there, and is this a problem for Christianity? For now, I'm Nick Peters signing off, and I'll see you again next week.